This is Mary Noel. Welcome back to my podcast of Whispered Stories ASMR. Today I'm going to be reading the second chapter of The Sea Lady by H.G. Wells. So sit back or lie back with your eyes closed, relax, and listen as I whisper this story. If you feel tingles, that's a bonus. second, some first impressions, there with as much verisimilitude as I can give it, is how the Folkestone mermaid really came to land. There can be no doubt that the whole affair was a deliberately planned intrusion on her part. She never had cramp. She couldn't have cramp. And as for drowning, nobody was near drowning for a moment except Mr. Bunting whose valuable life she very nearly sacrificed at the outset of her adventure, and her next proceeding was to demand an interview with Mrs. Bunting and to presume upon her youthful and glowing appearance to gain the support, sympathy, and assistance of what good-hearted lady, who as a matter of fact was a thing of yesterday, a mere chicken in comparison with her own immemorial years, in her extraordinary raid upon humanity. Her treatment of Mrs. Bunting would be incredible if we did not know that, in spite of many disadvantages, the sea lady was an extremely well-read person. She admitted as much in several later conversations with my cousin Melville. For a time, there was a friendly intimacy, so Melville always preferred to present it between these two and my cousin, who has a fairly considerable amount of curiosity, learned many very interesting details about the life out there or down there, for the sea lady used either expression. At first, the sea lady was exceedingly reticent under the gentle insistence of his curiosity, but after a time, I gather, she gave way to bursts of cheerful confidence. It is clear, says my cousin, that the old ideas of the submarine life as a sort of perpetual game of hoo-hoo through groves of coral, diversified by moonlight air combings on rocky strands, need very extensive modification. In this matter of literature, for example, they have practically all that we have, and unlimited leisure to read it in. Melville is very insistent upon and rather envious of that unlimited leisure. A picture of a mermaid swinging in a hammock of woven seaweed with what bishops call a latter-day novel in one hand and a sixteen-candle-power phosphorescent fish in the other may jar upon one's preconceptions, but it is certainly far more in accordance with the picture of the abyss she printed on his mind. on things everywhere, and even among the immortals, modernity spreads. Even on Olympus, I suppose there is a progressive party and a new phaeton agitating to supersede the horses of his father by some solar motor of his own. I suggested as much to Melville, and he said, horrible, horrible, and stared hard at my steady fire. 
dear old Melville. She gave him no end of facts about deep sea reading. Of course, they do not print books out there, for the printer's ink underwater would not so much run as fly. She made that very plain. But in one way or another, nearly the whole of terrestrial literature, says Melville, has come to them. We know, she said, they form indeed a distinct reading public. In addition to their vast submerged library that circulates forever, with the tides are now pretty systematically sought. The sources are various and in some cases a little odd. Many books have been found in sunken ships. Indeed, said Melville, there is always a dropping and blowing overboard of novels and magazines from most passenger-carrying vessels. Sometimes, but these are not as a rule valuable additions, a deliberate shying overboard. But sometimes books of an exceptional sort are thrown over when they are quite finished. Melville is a dainty, irritable reader, and no doubt he understood that. From the sea beaches of holiday resorts, moreover, the lighter sorts of literature are occasionally getting blown out to sea. So soon as the booms of our great popular novelist are over, Melville assured me the libraries find it's convenient to cast such surplus copies of their current works as the hospitals and prisons cannot take below high water. That's not generally known, said I. They know it, said Melville. In other ways, the beaches yield young couples who begin to sit heapy. The sea lady told my cousin as often as not will leave excellent modern fiction behind them when at last they return to their proper place. There is a particularly fine collection of English work, it seems, in the deep water of the English Channel. Practically the whole of the Dodgenitz Library is there, thrown overboard at the last moment by conscientious or timid travelers returning from the continent and there was for a time a similar source of supply of American reprints in the Mercy, but that has fallen off in recent years, and the deep-sea mission for fishermen has now for some years been raining down tracks and giving a particularly elevated tone of thought to the extensive shallows of the North Sea. The sea lady was very precise on those points, when one considers the conditions of its accumulation, one is not surprised to hear that the element of fiction is as dominant in this deep-sea library as it is upon the counters of Messrs. Muddy. But my cousin learned that the various illustrated magazines, and particularly the fashion papers, are valued even more highly than novels and looked for far more eagerly, and perused with envious emotion. Indeed, on that point, my cousin got a sudden glimpse of one of the motives that had brought the starling young lady into the air. He made some sort of suggestion. We should have taken to dressing long ago, she said, and added, with a vague quality of laughter in her tone, It isn't that we're unfeminine, Mr. Melville, only, as I was explaining to Mrs. Bunting, one must consider one's circumstances. 
How can one hope to keep anything nice underwater? Imagine lace. Soaked, said my cousin Melville. Drenched, said the sea lady. Ruined, said my cousin Melville. And then you know, said the sea lady very gravely, one's hair. Of course, said Melville, why, you can never get it dry. That's precisely it, said she. My cousin Melville had a new light on an old topic, and that's why, in the old time, exactly, she cried, exactly, before there were so many excursionists and sailors and low people about, one came out, one sat and brushed it in the sun, and then, of course, it really was possible to do it up, but now... She made a petulant gesture and looked gravely at Melville, biting her lip the while. My cousin made a sympathetic noise. The horrid modern spirit, he said, almost automatically. But though fiction and fashion appeared to be so regrettably dominant in the nourishment of the mermind, it must not be supposed that the most serious side of our reading never reaches the bottom of the sea. There was, for example, a case quite recently, the sea lady said, of the captain of a sailing ship whose mind had become unhinged by the huckstering uproar of the Times and Daily Mail, and who had not only bought a second-hand copy of the Times, reprinted of the Encyclopedia Britannica, but also that dense collection of literary snacks and samples, that all-literature sausage, which has been compressed under the weighty editing of Dr. Richard Garnett. It has long been notorious that even the greatest minds of the past were far too copious and confusing in their, as the word goes, lubrications. Dr. Garnett, it is alleged, has seized the jest and presented it so compactly that almost any business man now may take hold of it without hindrance to his more serious occupations. The unfortunate and misguided seaman seems to have carried the entire collection aboard with him with the pretty evident intention of coming to land in Sydney, the wisest man alive, a Hindu-minded thing to do. The result might have been anticipated. The mass shifted in the night through the whole weight of the science of the middle 19th century and the literature of all time in a virulently concentrated state and on one side of his little vessel and capsized it instantly. The ship, the sea lady said, dropped into the abyss as if it were loaded with lead and its crew and other movables did not follow it down until much later in the day. The captain was the first to arrive, said the sea lady, and it is a curious fact, due probably to some preliminary dippings into his purchase, that he came head first, instead of feet down and limbs expanded in the customary way. However, such exceptional windfalls avail little against the reign of light literature, that is constantly going on. The novel and the newspaper remained the world's reading, even at the bottom of the sea, as subsequent events would seem to show. It must have been from the common latter-day novel 
and the newspaper that the sea lady derived her ideas of human life and sentiment and the inspiration of her visit. And if at times she seemed to underestimate the nobler tendencies of the human spirit, if at times she seemed disposed to treat Adeline Glendower and many of the deeper things of life with a certain skeptical levity, if she did at last indisputably subordinate reason and right feeling to passion, it is only just to her and to those deeper issues that we should ascribe her aberrations to their proper cause. My cousin Melville, I was saying, did at one time or another get a vague, a very vague conception of what that deep sea world was like. But whether his conception has any quality of truth in it is more than I dare say. He gives me an impression of a very strange world indeed, a green, luminous fluidity in which these beings float, a world lit by great shining monsters that drift athwart it, and by waving forests of nebulous luminosity, amidst which the little fishes drift like netted stars. It is a world with neither sitting, nor standing, nor going, nor coming, through which its inhabitants float and drift as one floats and drifts in dreams. And the way they live there, my dear man, said Melville, it must be like a painted ceiling. I do not even feel certain that it is in the sea particularly that this world of the sea lady is to be found. But about those saturated books and drowned scraps of paper, you say, things are not always what they seem. And she told him all of that. We must reflect one laughing afternoon. She could appear at times, he says, as real as you or I. And again, came mystery all about her. There were times when it seemed to him you might have hurt her or killed her, as you can hurt and kill anyone, with a penknife, for example. And there were times when it seemed to him you could have destroyed the whole material universe and left her smiling still. But of this ambiguous element in the lady, more is to be told later. There are wider seas than ever kill sailed upon, and deeps that no lead of human casting will ever plumb. When it is all summed up, I have to admit I do not know. I cannot tell. I fall back upon Melville and my poor array of collected facts. At first, there were amazingly little strangeness about her for any who had to deal with her. There she was, palpably solid and material, a lady out of the sea. This modern world is a world where the wonderful is utterly commonplace. We are bred to show a quiet freedom from amazement, and why should we boggle at material mermaids with divorce solidifying all sort of impalpable things and Marconi waves spreading everywhere? To the Buntings, she was a matter of fact, as much a matter of authentic and reasonable motives and of sound, solid sentimentality as everything else in the Bunting world. So she was for them in the beginning, and so up to this day with them, her memory remains. The way in which the Sea Lady talked to Mrs. Bunting on that memorable morning 
when she lay all wet and still visibly fishy on the couch in Mrs. Bunting's dressing room. I am also able to give with some little fullness, because Mrs. Bunting repeated it all several times, acting the more dramatic speeches in it to my cousin Melville, and several of those good long talks that both of them, in those happy days, and particularly Mrs. Bunting, always enjoyed so much. And with her very first speech, it seems, the sea lady took her line straight to Mrs. Bunting's generous, managing heart. She sat up on the couch, drew the anti-macassar modestly over her deformity, and sometimes looked sweetly down, and sometimes openly and trustfully into Mrs. Bunting's face, and speaking in a soft, clear, grammatically manner, that stamped her at once as no mere mermaid, but a finished fine sea lady. She made a clean breast of it, as Mrs. Bunting said, and fully and frankly placed herself in Mrs. Bunting's hands. Mrs. Bunting, said Mrs. Bunting to my cousin Melville, in a dramatic rendering of the sea lady's manner, do permit me to apologize for this intrusion. For I know it is an intrusion, but indeed it has almost been forced upon me. And if you will only listen to my story, Mrs. Bunting, I think you will find, well, if not a complete excuse for me, for I can understand how exacting your standards must be. At any rate, some excuse for what I've done, for what I must call, Mrs. Bunting, my deceitful conduct towards you. Deceitful it was, Mrs. Bunting, for I never had cramp. But then, Mrs. Bunting, and here Mrs. Bunting would insert a long, impressive pause, I never had a mother. And then and there, said Mrs. Bunting, when she told the story to my cousin Melville, the poor child burst into tears and confessed she had been born ages and ages ago in some dreadful, miraculous way in some terrible place near Cyprus, and had no more right to a surname. Well, there, said Mrs. Bunting, telling the story to my cousin Melville, and making the characteristic gesture with which she always passed over and disowned any indelicacy to which her thoughts might have tended, and all the while speaking with such a nice accent and moving in such a ladylike way. Of course, said my cousin Melville, there are classes of people in whom one excuses, one must weigh. Precisely, said Mrs. Bunting, and you see it seems she deliberately chose me as the very sort of person she had always wanted to appeal to. It wasn't as if she came to us haphazard. She picked us out. She had been swimming round the coast, watching people day after day, she said for quite a long time, and she said when she saw my face, watching the girls bathe, you know how funny girls are, said Mrs. Bunting, with a little deprecatory laugh, and all the while with a moisture of emotion in her kindly eyes, she took quite a violent fancy to me from the very first. I can quite believe that, at any rate, said my cousin Melville with an unction. I know he did, although he always leaves it out of the story when he tells it to me, 
but then he forgets that I have had the occasional privilege of making a third party in these good long talks. You know, that's almost extraordinary and exactly like the German story, said Mrs. Bunting. Um, what is it? Undyne. Exactly, yes. And it really seems these poor creatures are immortal, Mr. Melville. At least within limits. Creatures born of the elements and resolved into the elements again. And just as it is in the story, there's always something. They have no souls. No souls at all. Nothing. And the poor child feels it. She feels it dreadfully. But in order to get souls, Mr. Melville, you know they have to come into the world of men. At least so they believe down there. And so she has come to Folkestone to get a soul. Of course, that's her great objective, Mr. Melville. But she's not at all fanatical or silly about it. Any more than we are, of course. We, people who feel deeply. Of course, said my cousin Melville. With, I know, a momentary expression of profound gravity. Drooping eyelids and a hushed voice. For my cousin does a good deal with his soul one way and another. And she feels that if she comes to earth at all, said Mrs. Bunting, she must come among nice people in a nice way. One can understand her feeling like that, but imagine her difficulties. To be a mere cause of public excitement and silly paragraphs in the silly season. To be made a sort of show-off. In fact, she doesn't want any of it, added Mrs. Bunting with the emphasis of both hands. What does she want? asked my cousin Melville. She wants to be treated exactly like a human being. To be a human being just like you or me. And she asked to stay with us to be one of our family and to learn how to live. She has asked me to advise her what books to read that are really nice and where she can get a dressmaker and how she can find a clergyman to sit under who would really be likely to understand her case and everything. She wants me to advise her about it all. She wants to put herself all together in my hands, and she asked it all so nicely and sweetly. She wants me to advise her about it all. Um, said my cousin Melville. You should have heard her, cried Mrs. Bunting. Practically it's another daughter, he reflected. Yes, said Mrs. Bunting, and even that did not frighten me. She admitted as much. Still, he took a step. She has means, he inquired abruptly. Ample. She told me there was a box. She said it was moored at the end of a groin. And accordingly, dear Randolph watched all through luncheon, and afterwards, when they could wade out and reach the end of the rope that tied it, he and Fred pulled it in and helped Fitch and the coachman carry it up. It's a curious little box for a lady to have, well made, of course, but of wood with a ship painted on the top and the name of Tom cut in it roughly with a knife. But, as she says, leather simply will not last down there and one has to put up with what one can get. And the great thing is it's full perfectly full of gold coins and things. Yes, gold and diamonds, Mr. Melville, 
you know Randolph understands something. Yes, well, he says that box. Oh, and I couldn't tell you how much it isn't worth. And all the gold things with just a sort of faint, ready touch. But anyhow, she is rich as well as charming and beautiful. And really, you know Mr. Melville altogether. Well, I'm going to help her just as much as ever I can. Practically, she's to be our paying guest. As you know, it's no great secret between us. Adeline, yes, she'll be the same. And I'll she'll bring her out and introduce her to people and so forth. It will be a great help. And for everyone except just a few intimate friends, she is to be just a human being who happens to be an invalid, temporarily an invalid. And we're going to engage a good, trustworthy woman. The sort of woman who isn't astonished at anything, you know. They're a little expensive, but they're to be got, even nowadays, who will be our maid and make her dresses, her skirts at any rate, and we shall dress her in long skirts and throw something over it, you know, over the tail, you know. My cousin Melville said precisely with his head and eyebrows, but that was the point that hadn't been clear to him so far, and it took his breath away. Positively, a tail. All sorts of incorrect theories went by the board. Somehow he felt this was a topic not to be too urgently pursued. But he and Mrs. Bunting were old friends. And she really has a tail, he asked. Like the tail of a big mackerel, said Mrs. Bunting. And he asked no more. It's a more extraordinary situation, he said. But what else could I do, asked Mrs. Bunting. Of course, the thing's a tremendous experiment, said my cousin Melville, and repeated quite inadvertently, a tale. Clear and vivid before his eyes, obstructing absolutely the advance of his thoughts, were the shiny clear lines, the oily black, the green and purple and silver, and the easy expansiveness of a mackerel's termination. But really, you know, said my cousin Melville, protesting in the name of reason, in the 19th century, a tail. I patted it, said Mrs. Bunting. Thank you for joining me in the reading of the second part of The Sea Lady. We will finish chapter two and go on to chapter three in the next episode. I hope you fell asleep before the end of the story.